0: I don't know if it's just because I work with teenagers. Um, I teach Bible at the high school here. Or if it's because I have kids. It's probably a combo of both. Or because I just love good old fashioned creativity. It's probably all three. But when I saw the trailer, the teaser, the preview for Frozen 2, (laughs) didn't see that coming, did you? I was hooked. It, it was just basically a scene of what might come, and I was like, wow, I really want to see this. I really want to see this. I know, right? Well, I have kids as an excuse. as an excuse, But um, those previews, right, that movies release, they, they want you to get a taste of what's to come so that you can watch it and then say, oh, I can't wait for it to come, and then you go and you watch it. That is a lot like how... Many people treat prophecy in the Bible. You read prophecy, the prophecy is given, and it's like a preview of things to come. And we watch it and we go, ooh, this is exciting. I can't wait for it to happen, for it to come. And then we kind of wait and then we want to watch it. It's almost like a movie experience. And that's fine. And there is some elements of that. But I want to ask, what if, in addition, we also looked at prophecy as a map for the future. Or maybe better, a map to the future. I don't mean that prophecy is a detailed map where you can neatly plot everything precisely as it's going to happen, when it's going to happen. There are some prophecies that are perhaps that clear. But I mean, the prophecy says, this is what God's future looks like. Given all the mess of humanity and all of the abyss that we've gone through, this is where God wants to take things. This is his future. But rather than looking at that and saying, boy, I can't wait for that to happen, what if prophecy at times was more like a map that said, okay, if that's God's future, then this is the direction we should be walking so that we can be ready and prepared and the type of soul, the type of person, the type of character that can receive this future. As C.S. Lewis puts it in many different ways of his works, that we are not able to handle the reality of God's future without the path of Jesus to transform us—it's too real. It's too much for the mere mortal to receive. And what if, when we look at prophecy, we see, "Wow, that's what may—that's what's going to happen." Um, this is now the path. that's asking me to walk in light of what's coming. Think of First John chapter three. It says um, that we're looking forward to his coming, and those who have this hope purify themselves, even as he is pure. There should be a path that prophecy invites us onto, a map like a treasure map, like ooh, this is where let's 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 walk this way then, because if you know what the future is going to look like, maybe not in detail, but in some general sense, if you know that general sense of the future, then you now know in advance what kind of people belong there, and we can therefore understand how to better follow Jesus now. So rather than just seeing, oh wow, this is going to be the future, just can't wait, and we sit back and and we watch the news eagerly, hoping like it's going to happen tomorrow, I hope it's going to happen, what if we got more focused on the map it's offering to become the kind of people that God's going to build his future around? Well, I think, and I hope, and I pray, that that question will at least have some plausibility and make some sort of sense as we go through this very odd passage. Now, how many of you read this? Chapter 38 and 39. And how many of you feel like you could do a really dandy job up here? It's on. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so... Full confession before we get into chapter thirty-eight. Um, I sometimes I don't feel I sometimes get nervous when it comes to prophecy because it's a very hostile and divided subject. It's a very hostile and divided subject. There is no universal agreement on the future. Probably because we haven't gotten there yet. Just a guess. But even when it seems that this there's a passage like what we're going to read that's very clearly about something down the road and not something that has happened, even when it's clear that there's something down the road, even when you read scholars who are in the same belief camp, none of them agree. You will get a slight different view or a radically different view for every commentary that you read. So I say that to say, full confession disclosure, I get nervous sometimes because there's going to be somebody who's going to feel like I was out to get your view. That's wrong, and that's not true. So don't misunderstand me tonight. I'm going to teach this passage to you the best I understand it. And, you know, you can be like, you got everything else right except that one. Fine, I can live with that, honestly. I can live with that. I just don't want you to feel personally Attacked. That's not at all my intention. Alright, let's go then. And by the way, if you feel that way, it's way too much about you and your life. Just saying. <laughs> okay, so Ezekiel 38. Now, Geo last week did this, uh, this amazing passage where God's saying Israel's gonna come back to the land. And in chapter 37, that is poetically and metaphorically and graphically portrayed through this valley of dry bones, totally uh, just a heap pile of death. And God takes that death, and he brings life out of it. He brings a nation out of it. So we know God's up to big things in this closing chapters of Ezekiel. The glory of God that departed in the early part of the book is returning at the end of the book. And so now it gets a little darker. It was beautiful in chapter 37. Now it's a little darker. The storm clouds gather. So chapter 38, verse 1. The word of Yahweh came to me. Son of man, set your face toward Gog, of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and prophesy against him and say, Thus says the Lord Yahweh. That phrase, Thus says the Lord Yahweh, is going to repeat seven times. This is the first. It will repeat six more times. So seven sections in these two chapters. We're going to see this, this odd future event. Seven sections. That's a very Jewish thing to do. It's almost like here's part of how the new world, right? Seven days of creation, how the new world is going to come about. Okay? Um, seven is also going to repeat later on. But so in this first section, we're going to see a beast called a beast and the beast is going to be unleashed upon the people of God. Scary. So in short, what you're going to see as we go through this, so you don't lose sight, is chapter 38 is going to tell us a story about this war. Chapter 39 is going to repeat the story with some different details. Very common in prophecy to have a, a side A and a side B of the same event. Um, so what we're going to see is, first, there's going to be an invasion. Okay, God's going to call these armies and invade Israel. Second, you're going to see an intervention. God is going to say, oh, hold on just a minute here, and he's going to save his people. So invasion, intervention, then you're going to see purification. Israel is going to have to clean up their land from the chaos of this war. And then fourth and finally, you're going to see revelation. That God is going to make himself obviously known to Israel and all the nations. That he is the one who protects his people. That's what we're going to see. So, in this first section, thus says the Lord Yahweh, verse 3. We're going to see the beast. Behold, I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. And I will turn you about and put hooks into your jaws. See that? That's how you handle a beast when you're in charge of it. You put hooks in its jaws, and you sling it around like it's your rebellious little puppy or something. Don't do that to a puppy. That's mean. Put hooks into your jaws, and I will... Wow, I just realized how bad that sounds. Don't do that. Don't do that. Uh, And I will bring you out and all your army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed in full armor, a great host, all of them with buckler and shield, wielding swords. Verse 5, Persia, Cush, and Put are within them, and all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer and his hordes, Beth to Gomorrah from the uttermost parts of the north with all his hordes, many peoples. Are with you now? Talking about Gog, the leader of this 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 national confederacy. Many people are with this Gog character. Verse seven: Be ready and keep ready. Talking to Gog, you and all your hosts that are assembled about you, and be a guard for them. After many days, you will be mustered. In the latter years, you will go against the land that is restored from war the land whose people were gathered from many peoples upon the mountains of israel which had been a continual waste its people were brought out of the peoples and now dwell securely all of them you will advance coming on like a storm you will be like a cloud covering the land you and all your hordes and many peoples with you Okay, so now we're introduced in this first section to the coming beast, this coming monster. Gog is his name. No one has a clue who Gog is. He appears to be some leader. Now, um, you may get a hint, though, when you look and it says, we're going to go back up to verse 2. Son of man, set your face toward Gog, so that's the leader, of the land of Magog, the chief Prince of Meshek and Tubal. Okay, this is where this gets really fun. I, mean, I had a lot of fun this week. Um, the land of Magog is way up in the north, and uh, it's actually present day. Russia owns that land presently. So a lot of people jump to the assumption that Magog is referring to Russia itself. Now, it gets more interesting because then it says the chief prince. That phrase chief prince is Rosh in Hebrew. So some people then say, ah, of course, Rosh, Russia. Gog comes, Gog is some leader from Russia. Now, the only problem with that is that Rosh also uh, simply refers to the fact, it's like a title. It's like, oh, you're chief prince. Um, The other problem with assuming that that means Russia is that since when did the sound of a Hebrew word suddenly mean the English word? Oh, because English happens to sound like Rosh, maybe Rosh is what it was saying. That, that's quite a jump. And a lot of, um, a lot of people who, uh, a lot of people I read really disagreed with that. Uh, so, Meshek, where is that today? In Tubal. These were ancient places. That, these were the names of these regions when Isaiah, uh, no, Ezekiel was writing this. Um, the region we now call uh, Turkey was then a couple of regions called Meshek and Tubal. Okay, so this today would be Turkey. So far we see Russia, we see Turkey. Uh, If you go down now to verse 5, you get a few more. Persia, that region is now known as Iran. Cush, that region is now uh, a few countries. It's now known as Sudan, South Egypt, and Northern Ethiopia. And then uh, you have Put, that is present-day Libya. And in verse 6, you have Gomer and Beth. Tagamora, those are both in Turkey. Okay. So, uh, here's this collection of people from those parts of the world. Gog is leading them. Now, is Gog a real person? Um, Is that his name? Uh, What is Gog? It's very possible that this is just going to be... a normal, charismatic leader who's going to get everyone together. But the weird Gog is interesting. because Is, is Ezekiel seeing his name far off? Like, oh, there's going to be a, Gog, a, name, a guy named Gog one day. Are we going to know a Gog the Great who's going to come on the news storming into Israel? Or is Gog just some sort of code word, some sort of prophecy word? For example, take Satan or the devil. Right there, we have two different names. Now, go to Genesis 3, and you have the serpent. In Genesis, uh, in Revelation 12, you have the dragon, right? In Isaiah 14, you have Lucifer. Uh, Jesus talks about Beelzebub. Paul talks about Belial. Uh, There are a slew of different terms and titles and names that are assigned to this evilness, this evil presence, this evil guy named the devil. So Gog, many think, can can be prophecy word for just another one of those titles you give to the forces of destruction and evil. So like the beast in Revelation is um, believed to be like a guy, but he's also like infused with the devil. Um, God could also be like that. He's like guy, but he's a tool of the devil or something. Or it's just a name for the devil and that would therefore make all of this host that's coming be more of a spiritual battle than a physical battle. See the problems that we're dealing with here. Okay, but there we see that there's this there's this coming war, right? So section number two is in verse 10. And what is their motivation? Greed. Thus says the Lord Yahweh, On that day, thoughts will come into your mind, and you will devise an evil scheme and say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. I will fall upon a quiet people who dwell securely, all of them dwelling without walls and having no bars or gates. Here you go, verse 12. To seize spoil and carry off plunder, to turn your hand against the waste places that are now inhabited, and the people who are gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock goods who dwell at the center of the earth. And then other nations are gonna say, Hey, are you going to grab spoil? We want to join you. Okay. So there we see their motivations. Pure greed. We just we just want to loot this peaceful land that's full of prosperity. So. Third scene, verse 14. Therefore, son of man, talking to Ezekiel, prophesy and say to Gog, thus says the Lord Yahweh, on that day when my people, Israel, are dwelling securely, will you not know it? You will come from your place out of the uttermost parts of the north. You and many peoples with you all of them riding on horses a great host a mighty army you will come up against my people Israel like a cloud covering the land in latter days I will bring you against my land the nations that the nations may know me when through you O Gog I vindicate my holiness before their eyes Section 3 Gog is a tool He's just a tool God's like, I'm going to use you to show everyone what I am actually about. I'm going to defend and rescue. Section 4, verse 17. This is the section I titled, But God. You know those two great words? In Ephesians chapter 2, we were sinners, we were lost, we were going to die. But God was rich in mercy. There's a lot of really good but God sections. This is one of them. So verse 17, thus says the Lord Yahweh. Are you he of whom I spoke in former days by my servants, the prophets of Israel, who in those days prophesied for years that I would bring you against them? Okay, that's troubling because here God seems to be implying there's a lot of prophets who've talked about Gog already. But you read the Bible, Gog is only here one other place, but we'll get there. That's in the New Testament. Gog is only here. What prophets is he talking about? That's where you can you can throw out and say, maybe Gog is just a word for a demonic host or for the devil or for some sort of demon, demon-possessed man. In other words, he's a tool of God, yes, but he's also a tool of the devil. And that's that's where, because if the other prophets have talked about him, then he must have showed up, but just under different names, like the names given to the devil. I don't know, but that's an interesting verse. So in verse 18, though, but... On that day, the day that Gog shall come against the land of Israel, declares the Lord Yahweh, my wrath will be roused in my anger. Touch my children? Watch what I can do. So watch in verse 19. For in my jealousy... And in my blazing wrath, I declare, on that day there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. The fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the field and all creeping things that creep on the ground and all the people who are on the face of the earth shall quake at my presence. All of creation is going to tremble. And the mountains shall be thrown down and the cliffs shall fall and every way shall shall tumble to the ground. I will summon a sword against Gog on all my mountains, declares the Lord Yahweh. Every man's sword will be against his brother. With pestilence and bloodshed, I will enter into judgment with him. And I will rain upon him and his hordes and the many peoples who are with him, torrential rains and hailstones, fire and sulfur. And I will show my greatness and my holiness and make myself known in the eyes of many nations. Then they will know that I am Yahweh. Whew. So that list of so many supernatural interventions, a lot of these are in Revelation, all over in Revelation. So some interesting comparisons you can begin to muse about, if you're like me, you just you know muse about these things. But then chapter 39, fifth section. This is the section of purification. So we've seen the invasion. We've seen the intervention. Now we're going to see the purification. That Israel has a lot of cleanup to do after this massive war. And you, son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, Thus says the Lord Yahweh. And now he's reiterating a lot that he's going to bring Gog against the people. But what gets really interesting is when you get to verse 5. You, Gog, this is 39 verse 5 shall fall in the open field, for I have spoken, declares the Lord Yahweh. I will send fire on Magog and on those who dwell securely in the coastlands, for they shall know that I am Yahweh. I will send fire on Magog. Hmm. Now, Revelation is easy to find, so hold your place and find Revelation. It's in the last book of the Bible. That's why it's easy. And you might want to also just put a bookmark in Revelation because we, we may come back one more time later. Revelation chapter 20. Now, there's a lot to be said about Revelation chapter 20. But for now, we will suffice with simply reading a verse that is clearly being borrowed from what we just read in Ezekiel. Okay, so Revelation chapter 20, we have this thousand years of peace where Christ is ruling with the saints, uh, apparently on the earth, and Satan is chained up, so it's a great time. But the thousand years end, so Revelation 20 verse 7, When the thousand years are ended, the good days are gone, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. So what did we just read in Ezekiel? In verse 6, I will send fire on Magog. So we see Magog's end as fire. We see that reiterated in Revelation. But we continue. In verse 9, the cleanup. So we see uh, Magog and this whole horde gets incinerated, right? Then in verse 9, uh, we're back in Ezekiel 39, verse 9. Those who dwell in the cities of Israel will go out and make fires of the weapons and burn them shields and bucklers, bows and arrows, clubs and spears. They will make fires of them for seven years. So when Revelation says that this army is like the sand of the sea, do you get it now? <laughs> like they're, All of their weapons are collected at the great deliverance from this war. God delivers them. They take all of the weapons from all of their land, put them in a huge heap, light the fire and it burns for seven years nonstop. That's a lot. Hey, Bill, we're down to coals. Put another bow and arrow on it. You want 100 or 500? Let's do 400 tonight. Throws them on, right? It's just endless for seven years that you can keep fueling this fire with the weapons. Massive, right? Massive, massive war. Okay. Now in verse 10, as a result of them burning... um, the weapons for seven years, look what happens in verse ten. So they will not need to take wood out of the field or cut down any out of the forests, for they will make their fires of the weapons. Creation gets a rest. Remember how God commanded Israel gives the land, gives creation a rest every seventh year? Don't plough your fields, just let it grow. Well, they're gonna get a seven year rest. Creation, it seems, is going to be healed. It's going to flourish without human interference, without us cutting things down or using them or polluting it, because we will have weapons instead to fuel what's going on. That's really interesting. Now, in verse 11, we see another seven, right? Seven sections, now seven years of fire. Now, verse 11, we're going to have seven months. On that day, I will give to Gog a place for burial in Israel the valley of the travelers east of the sea. I will block or it will block the travelers for there Gog and his multitude will be buried. It will be called the valley of Haman Gog, which means multitude of Gog for seven months. The house of Israel will be burying them in order to cleanse the land Okay, that's a lot right there. Seven months of burials. That is a massive, an entire valley is going to become a graveyard that they're burying them in. And nobody can travel that way anymore because Israel can't touch dead things, right? So they're going to have designated people burying people for seven months, full-time jobs. Why? To cleanse the land. We're seeing the purification, right? No, keep going. Verse 13. All the people of the land will bury them, and it will bring them renown on the day that I show my glory, declares the Lord Yahweh. They will set apart men to travel the land regularly and bury those travelers remaining on the face of the land so as to cleanse it. And at the end of seven months, they will make their search. So now there's going to be peoples whose job is to search the land for dead enemy bodies. For seven months, they've got a full-time job of hunting down the dead. Well, hunting, it's not like they're running around, but dragging the dead into this valley and burying them. And at the end of these seven months, they're going to sweep through the land again just to make sure they didn't miss a single tooth, a single jawbone, anything. Everything is gathered. No trace or memory of this enemy will be Left behind. So in verse fifteen. And when these travel these full time barriers, when these travel through the land and anyone sees a human bone, then he shall set up a sign by it till oh excuse me here are the travelers, till the barriers have buried it in the valley of Ham Gog. Okay, so anyone. Hey, I found maybe even a hair who knows? I found a hair. Uh, Put up a sign, and the barriers will come around like, oh, there's one, and everything will be covered. So in verse 16, uh, thus shall they cleanse the land. So three times in that fifth section, that's why we called it purification, it's emphasizing that after the war, there will need to be a cleansing in the land. Seven years of fire, seven months of burying. Sixth section, 39, verse 17. As for you, son of man, thus says the Lord Yahweh, speak to the birds of every sort and to all beasts of the field. Assemble and come, gather from all around to this sacrificial feast that I am preparing for you, a great sacrificial feast on the mountains of Israel, and you shall eat flesh and drink blood. Wow. The invitation continues in 18. You shall, drink, you shall eat the flesh of the mighty and drink the blood of princes of the earth, of rams, of lambs, and of he goats, of bulls, all of them, fat beasts of Bashan. Whoa. Okay. You saw this invitation to birds and beasts, to this sacrificial feast. Sacrificial. Israel did sacrifices in the temple. You know what they sacrificed? Rams, lambs, and goats. Then, what did he say? Come and feast on princes and kings. And then he, right here, he, uh, in verse 18, he then calls these princes and kings rams, lambs, and he goats, and bulls. He's likening these dead enemy army people to animals slaughtered for a sacrifice. Now, what did the sacrifices of Israel do? They purified and cleansed. Interestingly, too, is when they broke in uh, both the tabernacle when it was first set up and then the temple that Solomon built when it was first set up. They slaughtered all kinds of animals to dedicate it to God, to open it up to him, saying, we're devoting this to you. We're cleansing any human blemish on this and we are giving it to God. Could it be? Could it be That what we have here is those who set themselves against God will then be turned into the offering to cleanse the fallen world and renew it. Speaking of temples, guess what happens next week in chapter 40 through 48? Ezekiel's going to describe the new temple for us. Now, back to the birds and the beasts. Um, This is another... This is another uh, section that takes us back to Revelation. So if you will go to Revelation 19 this time, just a chapter before, 20. Revelation 19, verse 17. And you're going to see again, Revelation's clearly borrowing from Ezekiel. 1917. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and the riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And John, the person writing Revelation, says, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with the armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. They obviously lose because the birds have come to enjoy that army that falls. Okay. One more section, and then we're going to piece some of this chaos together, and we will see if this has anything for Americans in 2019. Now, uh, 39, verse 25. The seventh and final section. Happily ever after. Therefore, thus says the Lord Yahweh. Now, now what? Now that the invasion has come, he's intervened. They've purified the land and the birds are having a heyday and the beasts are having their fill. Now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel. He'll have mercy. This is the opposite of what he's been saying in Ezekiel. In 5.11, 7.4, 8.18, and 9.10, God said, I will have no pity on my people. You know, The Babylonians came and did their thing. I'll have no pity. I'm just going to let it happen. Now, now that this great event has happened, now I will have mercy on my people. We will finally live happily ever after. And it goes on and it talks about security. And 26, they shall forget their shame and all the treachery they have practiced against me when they dwell securely in their land with none to make them afraid when i have brought them back from the peoples and gathered them from their enemies lands and through them have vindicated my holiness in the sight of many nations and you saw that vindication in the sight of many nations we just read about it, their destruction 20 then they shall know that i am yahweh their god because i sent them into exile among the nations and then assembled them into their own land I will leave none of them remaining among the nations anymore. And I will not hide my face anymore from them when I pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord Yahweh. There you have it. Seven scenes detailing a big battle that takes seven years to burn the weapons from and seven months to bury the bodies of. Seven, seven, seven. Okay. When does this thing happen? Don't you want to know? Is this tomorrow? Um, should I be concerned in the news when Russia is getting some activity going and uh, Turkey's involved? Like, should I be concerned about that? Has this happened already? Is this going to happen somewhere way down the road? What, what is going on? Okay. So here's where I give you uh, the nerdy stuff. The four... Possible timings of this event, and all of them have problems, so have fun. first possible timing of this great war is any time meaning literally tonight you could i don 't know if you dare watch Fox News or CNN before you go to bed It'll give you bad dreams, but you probably fight with your wife and you go to bed but um, <laughs> It's just a lot of yelling on those shows, but um, if you do that, then you might even you might see something interesting on the news. It could be tonight or tomorrow when you open up the paper or open your iPad or whatever. However, you get the news, uh, you might. Wow, what? This is no. This is crazy. It could. It could happen anytime. time. There's no. There's no prophecies that need to be fulfilled before the end of everything happens. So it could. Now, um, those of you who are familiar with the Left Behind books and Joel Rosenberg's work and his books, um, they they favor this anytime scenario because, in their view, uh, the rapture will happen after this war. So this will be a precursor to our happy time. Uh, second timing, possible timing. Um, early in that seven-year tribulation, you know the tribulation. And if you don't, you need a class, okay? It's kind of complicated. but uh, The tribulation is seven years in the future where this great world ruler is going to make peace with Israel. He's going to find a solution for the Jews to live happily with the Arabs. And um, it's going to last for seven years. Uh, it's going to be broken somewhere in that. And so one possible timing is that this war happens early in that seven-year peace treaty. It's deceitful. Notice how notice how it kept saying that they're dwelling securely. Um, for just for example, thirty-eight, verse eleven, uh, Gog is saying, "I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. I'll fall upon a quiet people who dwell securely. All of them dwelling without walls and having no bars and gates. What kind of a country lives like that? Exactly, none." So this is some unique time where Israel feels completely secure. The guy that rules the world or the guy that the whole world loves, he's got our back. Bring the walls down. No military. Um, that's, that's a possible scenario. I see problems with that. I don't think any country is ever going to be that lax, no matter who makes a covenant with you. You should always be suspicious. But it could happen that then, ah, boom, they were tricked. That mean Antichrist tricked us. Um, Third possible timing. Uh, Many think that this is, what you're reading here, is the the infamous battle of Armageddon. Armageddon. When all that final war, when all the nations come together and the Antichrist is leading them, they think this is another telling of that war. Um, If Armageddon's at the end, however... This is what some people say is, well, then how would you have seven years to burn the wood and seven months to bury the people if everything's like right at the end? That kind of seems pointless. That's what they say. Um, And then the fourth possible timing is after the millennium. Now, the millennium is in Revelation 20 where there's this 1,000 year, that's why it's called the millennium, 1,000 year period of Christ and his people ruling the world. It'll be a time of prosperity and peace. Um, one possible timing is that this war happens then. Okay. All of them have problems, but I would recommend um, that this possibly is after the millennium. And my reason for that is, well, rather than trusting news sources and matching ancient regions with current political states and names and thinking, oh, Ezekiel's talking about Russia and so forth, rather than doing that, which isn't very biblical, it's just guesswork, um, the Bible itself mentions Gog and Magog and I I want to say, I think the Bible is saying, that's, this is where it's happening. <laughs> so, you, we already read it, but in, in Revelation 20, it was at the end of the thousand years, Satan is released, one last havoc upon the earth, and that's when this battle happens. He says, John says, it was Gog and Magog who are gathering for battle. Unless Gog and Magog are raised from the dead and have a, another battle, but it seems to me that it, this is... This is right at the end of the millennium. And notice, notice Revelation 21. What is the very next event? Now, hopefully you just know this because these are important chapters. Revelation 21, the new heaven, the new earth are presented. And the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven to the new heaven and new earth. And from there, the lamb reigns and there's no temple because he himself and the city and the whole world is the temple. Now, with that in mind, what do you see in Ezekiel? Well, you see this battle in chapters 38 and 39, and then in chapter 40, without even reading it yet, the title of my Bible says, Vision of the New Temple. Oh, the rest of the book's The Vision of the New Temple. Okay, do do you see? Do you see this? Ezekiel's saying there's this Gog-Magog war and then a new temple. This is how my vision's lining up. And then Revelation says, all right, there's this Gog-Magog battle and then at the end of that, there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth and a new Jerusalem resting on this new creation and the whole thing is the new temple because God is everywhere in that land. Everywhere you step, it is the temple. A city temple forest, jungle creation thing. Garden. That's the word I was looking for, garden. Um, Now, I go through all that to say um, what we have going on then if, and of course I'm as ripe to be wrong as any of the others. Um, I'm just going with what Revelation's alluding to. Then what we have going on in this war is that God is letting us know no matter what happens, no matter where things go, I have the final word. That's really the point of these chapters. Despite trying to identify this or that or when or what is going on, it's very clear that the point of these chapters is, my people have seen a lot of evil, and we've read about it in this book. But I will be faithful to deliver them in the end. We'll talk more about this next week, but if there's a new temple coming, one of the things you have to do is cleanse the land. That's another point of this war. Why is it so big? Because if God's going to remake everything and make all things new, one of the ways you do that, and you have to do that, is to eliminate and eradicate and remove everything that works against what he's trying to make. Do you see? You can't just simply say, all right, the future's here, my new heaven and new earth, and the new Jerusalem is here. Oh yeah, there's a lot of rabble who's just going to ruin it again. What? You're just going to have Genesis 3 happen all over again, right? He creates this, but then he also says, if you have been living the sort of life forever and ever that wants nothing to do with this future... I'm going to gather you together in one massive battle where you can vent all your rage and your anger against God and against his people and live the life you want just for a short period so that then I can incinerate you and say, all right, awesome. It's basically just trying to purify the earth of the rabble that will ruin what God's trying to do. Why do we live in a world we live in now? Quite frankly, there's a lot of people that don't want God on earth. That's why he's... Hasn't made the whole thing his temple, right? It has to be cleansed. We have the massive um, cleansing. It's almost like the flood, only very different. Fire instead of water. Purity is important. So if we're looking at prophecy, going back to our question, can it be seen as a map to the future, then yes, yes. Looking at this, if what this is, is God purifying the world so that he can bring his presence from pole to pole, his reign from end to end, then we want to be people who are walking the path of purity. You don't want to be the one who has to be, the world has to be cleansed of you. You want to be Good riddance. We got rid of Billy. (laughs) No, that's horrible. (laughs) Billy was your boss, I know. The the job you left, that's who he is. Um, No, not at all. Um, You want to be the person who was already cleansed, the person who's been walking pure. And what would that map look like? Well, some people try to and one reason we have trouble with placing the timing of this battle, some people try to get super literal with it and say, okay, well, seven years to, to eliminate the weapons. Where do you fit seven years? If it's after the millennium and then the new world comes, how do you, why are we cleaning things up for seven years? And they have all these questions like, is there going to be a seven-year gap? And Okay, maybe. That, yeah, that sounds weird. Why are you burying bodies if they're just going to be raised up again? Yeah, that's a good question. So what some people said is the sets of seven in here are meant to be like exclamation points of, yo, I'm not trying to give you a literal seven-year timeline period. I'm just trying to say that this is the new world God's going to bring into being. He's going to eliminate evil to bring it in. That's how he's going to do it. Just like in Genesis chapter 1, there are seven days. Um, one of the things that God does is there is chaos you open the Bible and it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the waters. And there was darkness. There's no life there. Darkness and water in the Bible are consistently, at least ocean water, not sprinkling water. Uh, they're consistently evil sources in the Bible. God steps in, and for seven days he conquers it. How? He brings life into it. He brings life into it. He takes what is useless and makes it useful. He takes something that's uninhabitable and makes it habitable. And then, what does he do on the seventh day? He rests. Which, in Hebrew thought, didn't mean like you and I. It's like, oh good, the NHL playoffs are on right now. I'm going to rest. Uh, no, not like that. Obviously, you wouldn't do that anyways because the ducks aren't there. But um, you rest to the Jew meant there's nothing left to conquer. I will now move in. And in ancient societies, when a king conquered a land and cleansed it from all rebels, they would build two things. A statue of themselves. What does the Bible call us? He made us in the image of God and a temple. The king would then build a temple and say, I devote this land to my God. When God moves in, It's his house. The entire cosmos was his temple until we polluted it. So where was I going with that? Sevens. Um, What we have here is another creation of sorts, but it's an undoing, right? To bring the new creation. And so seven years of burning the weapons that were used against you. Seven months to bury the bodies that were against you. If, if this is a map, and purity is what we need, then these are two steps for us. Now, purity. It's, it's to burn and bury. We often think of purity, at least the way I grew up, purity was always used in a sexual connotation. You know, Be pure, which means don't sleep with somebody until you're married. Um, be pure. Don't look at something. Be pure. Or, or and it also went beyond. That's like the words you use. Everything was, you know, be pure means like don't let it in around ears, thoughts, eyes, body, anywhere. But purity is so much deeper than just what I do with my body. That is important. But purity is also my emotions and the way I see the world. Seven. So purity is burning. Seven years they burned the weapons that were turned against them. This means no retaliation. You don't see Israel pick these weapons up and say, now we've got the power, get them boys. No, these weapons are not going to hang around so that we can retaliate. Instead, we're going to gather them and we're going to make sure weapons are never used again in the world. This is creating the new world. And one of the ways that we can walk this map is when people use words, use concepts, use questions, uh, use manipulation, whatever the weapons are in your life, when they use those against you, don't play their game. Don't fight fire with fire. Take that weapon and say, I'm sorry you feel that way, snap and burn it. The idea is that you never have a chance to grab it and use it against somebody else. But I'm sorry we do this. I've quit Facebook, so if you've been trying to reach me there, I'm sorry. But um, I Because I got so tired of seeing my Christian brothers and sisters use it as a platform to use the ugly language and hostile view of politics against the very people who do the same thing to them like really you're really going to re- you're really going to stoop as low as them why we need to learn the rule of no retaliation and man, the social media platforms are so ripe for, someone says something about you, your mom, your dog, you're going to say something about them. You could just, with the tap of a button, fire your missile. Pfft, I don't have to see the chaos. I hope it hurts. No retaliation. This brings us to Jesus. Um, when he comes to Jerusalem, they are after him. Right? Passion week, holy week. Sunday, is the day he rides in on the donkey to Jerusalem. Man, the minute he comes in, they're after him. The Pharisees are like, do you hear what everyone's saying about you? They're singing Hosanna, the son of David. Uh, then the next day, uh, he's cleansing the temple. And they're like, who gives you this right? And then the next day, they're asking him questions and trying to pigeonhole him. They're trying to corner him. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Which are all dangerous questions to answer because he would get in trouble for either answer. Um, but Jesus doesn't play their game. He does. He disarms them. He takes their weapon and says, Let me burn that. Let's just take so Tuesday is the day when he's asked, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Do you remember this? Okay, so if he says, yes, we should pay taxes to Caesar, then the Jews will know, oh, he's on the Roman side. But if he says, no, we shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar, then the Jews will say, Yay, he's on our side, and the Romans will go, "Mm Mm-hmm, watch him. He's dangerous. So much like today. Everyone asks you things like, so, our governor, what do you think about what he just did? And they're ready to corner you this way or that way with your one answer. Oh, you're against me. Or, oh, you're for me. We do this to people all the time. As Christians, we are cornered in this way all the time. But Jesus, so brilliantly says, mm, he always turns, right? He doesn't feel like he has to answer questions. He, he's quicker to Question their question. That that was a rabbinical tradition, by the way. You ask someone a question, rather than answering it, they'll ask you a question back. And he did that. Does anyone have a coin? Oh, 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 me, me, me. They're all anxious, right? Okay, first of all, it shows that they're rich. So they're the powerful, and there's a lot of poor worshipers around. And then, like, I got one. And he's like, okay, cool, whose face is on it? I know, I know. It's Caesar, now, what you don't know, but if you see archaeology, there'd be the face of Caesar, which, one, was offensive to a Jew because that's an idol. Where are they? They're on the temple mount. <laughs> they brought an idol into the temple. Pfft. Everyone would know that, right? This isn't nitpicking. Like, this was culture... That's why there was money changers. They had to change the Roman money for Jewish money. So it was an idolatrous. So here you have these religious leaders with the idolatrous coin in their pocket. So he's already got them. He isn't- All he did was ask a question. And... Um, on that, around that face would be the words, I don't remember Latin, but um, it's, it says, Son of God. Eh, another step to idolatry. This man on this coin is the Son of God. Um, so anyways, they expose themselves, right? By holding up that single coin, everybody now knows which side they're on. And Jesus never had to answer the question because now they're embarrassed as they say, oh, oh, you got us. And now, he doesn't even have to answer the question. These are the things Jesus does. So, if you're a you know if you're a lady who isn't married yet doesn't have kids yet and people always like when you get married huh as if it's like your God given duty to get married and have a kid or something um, you don't have to like play that game like well why do you want to know it's a better response right we don't have to anyways we don't have to retaliate um, just trying to tie this into Holy Week that's why we went there um, then finally so that's the burning of the weapons for seven years. No retaliation. This map to the future means we live without retaliating. Remember Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? You've heard it said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Now that was the law, and it was a good law. Because in ancient societies, if you wrong my family, I'm going to get my entire village, and we're going to take out your village. Just because you offended my brother, let's say. You just offended him, we're going to wipe you out. Things escalated. The law was meant to say, stop escalating revenge. And just, if if he offends your brother, then just offend their brother and be done with it. Well, we've gotten better at that. I don't, we haven't thrown too many nukes around lately, so we're doing much better at that. But Jesus went a step further and said, okay, enough with that. I say, if someone strikes you on the cheek, turn your other cheek. Takes your cloak, give your cloak. Forces you go one mile, go two. Jesus was asking that we don't retaliate. Now, he was not telling you to be a doormat and let people wipe their feet on you and punch you and beat you. Um, those words he gave mean a lot more, but it would take another night to explain. But he was giving people power to be, to not be cornered. Um, So then in 39, verse 12, we saw seven months the house of Israel will be burying them. So the map to the future, to God's future, means we must stop retaliating. One of the ways to be pure is to stop having to get even with people. Stop retaliating. Burn your weapons. Second, though, no zombies. They're burying the dead. Now, these are my enemies. I could dangle them around on a chain and humiliate them. I can make them be my servants and massage my feet after I work out. I can um, make them scrub the toilet with a toothbrush. There's all kinds of things I could do now that the enemy's in my power. But instead, they're burying them. One, that's human dignity, right? Giving someone a proper burial. But two, friends when people wrong us, when we have enemies that surround us and attack us, how many times, even if we've moved on, how many times do we bring it back up? Family gatherings are good at this, aren't they? <laughs> All they have to do is say, yeah, but mom, you were never very good at listening to me. You always listen to Susie. <sighs> you know what happened right there? The zombies came up out of the ground and they invaded the dinner table. Those zombies are the things that you should have buried long ago. You attacked me, you offended me, you hurt me. Well, rather than keeping that in the back of my mind to unleash on you one day, the burying is meant to say, look, take your enemies, burn their weapons, and bury the hurts, bury the things that have happened to you so that you're not holding that. And one day you're like, but you never loved me. Like You can bring up years of arguments with one phrase, right? That's the zombie. These people for seven months were certain they got everything out. This is part of purity. What are we keeping within us? What are we holding against people? To be pure is to put that away. And if it's buried, you aren't going to go dig it up. That's that's what a zombie is, when the dead come back to life. Notice the emphasis on all the burying. They even have full-time burying people. Put up a sign if you find even a bone. Because remember in chapter 37, there were bones, right? What happened to those bones? Oh, they came alive. That's why the burying, there's going to be no trace of this wickedness coming back ever again. And so for you and I, leave no trace of your bitterness, of your anger, to accidentally come out in a stressful moment. That's the path toward purity. Burn and bury. Enemies, we may wonder, why are they around? Why do they attack me? Why has God chosen to let us be surrounded by a bunch of people? Because enemies will test what's in your heart. Enemies will test what's in your heart. I'm not going to use a weapon against the people I love. But against my enemy? Hmm. Depends what day it is. See, an enemy will test what's in my heart. Eh, I'm not going to bring up the past ever, like those hurtful words or those hurtful, I'm going to hold that against you. I'll never forget what you did to me. But against my enemy? I want them to know every day. Enemies show us what's in our heart. So if we want to walk the map to God's future, a map that is moving toward purity, we must seek purity today, which means no retaliation and no zombies. And the good news is that Jesus was buried. My sin was put upon him. The sins of the world were put upon him. He was buried. And then, then, did he come out on Sunday? Did he come out Easter Sunday with... Oh, yeah, let me, let us wait. Especially that Ryan guy, man. He really burdened my shoulders. Wait till I get to Ryan. Or Peter, when Peter came home. Oh, Peter, I heard you denied me three times. What was up with that, buddy? 30 push-ups <laughs> per syllable. Um, he didn't come out with his guns blazing, right? There was no weapons for him to use. They were burned. And there was no grievances to bring back up. It was all buried. When he came out of the tomb, he was a new creation. The old had been killed. He came out new, leading us on the path to the new resurrection life, which everything is going to be renewed under him. That's the good news we have. So we're going to take communion, as we do every week. And we get to, with that, remember that Christ buried everything. And he's not going to pull it up and say, Well, Ron, I'm glad he came to church. You know, I've been keeping attendance on you. No, no, he buried that. He buried that. So we can come boldly, as Hebrew says, boldly to the throne because he's giving us grace to help in a time of need. The zombies aren't going to come out of the closet on you. I think sometimes we hide from God because we're afraid of what's going to come out. Listen, God took it all and he buried it. And if anything comes running out and scaring you, all you have to do is say, thanks for burning and burying that, Jesus. Thank you. So be free, be liberated to walk in purity. You are God's child, and he does not desire to obliterate you. He wants to live with you. Father, we pray that as we are surrounded with the gods...